Hello and welcome. This is Assorted Goods. I'm Dan Felton, your host and your guide as we take this curious look at the world around us. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode and for giving this podcast the time of day. This episode, though, we're getting to do something that, well, at first seemed like fun to me, which is talk about one of my favorite things on earth, football, specifically in the National Football League. Sports, I know, but hold on. If you're not a sports fan, don't go running for the hills just yet. This episode isn't diving into the big winners and losers or the big stat guys or how one head coach doesn't seem to understand the importance of a balanced offense between his run plays and pass plays. And that may be why we keep losing games every right, Dan. It's not what it's about. No, this episode, we're talking about concussions and brain injuries, a problem that has marred the National Football League for decades now. But specifically, since a 2013 lawsuit was settled between thousands of former players and the league itself, which created a pool of funds that was supposed to be used to provide healthcare to former players who were experiencing neurological effects from their playing days. The problem? Well, the NFL wasn't exactly fair or honest, and in reality was downright racist in the way that they assessed former players in order to receive these benefits. We're looking at the National Football League's use of a concept called race norming when assessing former players for neurological conditions and what it means for a league that has always had a complicated history with its own racial dynamics. All that's coming up here on this episode of Assorted Goods, so settle in and tighten up those chin straps because, well, this episode, we're going to need them. Assorted Goods is produced by Disinformed Media in association with Verboten Productions. Promotional support comes from the Always Up Network and DeanBlundell.com. So I don't really know how to start an episode about something that I love as much as football, especially considering that I'm going to end up criticizing it for most of the episode, but I don't really know how to begin the episode any other way than to start with something personal. You know, when I was growing up, sports was everything to me. It was my favorite thing. Everyone in my family knew I was an insane sports fan. It's the main way that my dad and I connected when I was young. And of course, like most kids, I grew up wanting to be an athlete. I wanted to be a hockey player, except I couldn't skate. I wanted to be a baseball player, except I was always too shy to go out for tryouts. And then one day, football found its way into my life, which you have to understand, as a five foot seven, about 150 pound kid, football, me, I know. But hey, here's the thing. It ended up being the only sport I was ever decent at. I was captain of my high school football team and a good team at that, which is hard to believe, I know. Really, but football for a long time was the thing in my life, like the most important thing through and through. It's where I got all my meaning, all my purpose. And, you know, in years since, well, it's still one of my favorite things on earth, but I've learned to broaden my horizons, I guess. But also at the same time, football was a rough game to play. I took blows to the head in high school that only now I'm starting to realize may have done a little damage. The thing is that when I played high school football, which was sort of the mid to late aughts, you know, 2007, 8, that sort of time, the knowledge about concussions was thin. Truly, it was. I mean, I ended up going to university just a couple years after that, taking health sciences, learning about brain injuries, and even at that point, being in a program that was one of the leading health sciences programs in the country here in Canada, we were told the research on concussions is kind of sparse and uncertain, still hadn't figured it out yet. In the decades since, obviously that's changed quite a lot, but you can understand, I grew up right at the edge of the end of sort of the confusion about what concussions were, how they were caused, and what they can do to people's brains. The thing is, 
there actually was someone who knew a lot about concussions. And they had been doing research for two decades already by the time I started getting my bell rung on a high school football field. I mean, of course, by now you can probably guess that I'm talking about the National Football League. I mean, who better to know about concussions and brain injuries than an organization whose central workforce pretty much all gets concussions just for participating in the sport? The problem is, though, of course, that the NFL for a long time tried really hard to cover up the negative neurological health effects of playing the game of football, not just at the professional level, but even at the college and, yes, high school level. Football was a dangerous game for a long time. The National Football League played an active role in suppressing what would have been vital information that could have advanced research in the field. But as is tradition here on Assorted Goods, I am getting ahead of myself, so let's slow down and roll it back a little bit. And take it to 1994. The Lion King and Forrest Gump were in theaters. I was only three years old, but despite my age, I was still able to recognize what god-awful style people had in the early to mid-90s. I mean, really, ugh, terrible. But at the same time, the NCAA, that being the organization that oversees college football, had been conducting research for years looking into the effects of what they were calling MTBIs, mild traumatic brain injuries, which we now know as concussions. Now, the NCAA, after doing this research for years, decided to adopt the Colorado Medical Society's guidelines for assessing concussions in 1991. Now, what this guideline does is give four different grades for the severity of a concussion and then a corresponding amount of time that a person has to wait before they can be cleared to continue to participate. And these guidelines were created in 1991 after a high school athlete was killed because of second impact syndrome. Now, second impact syndrome is where you suffer a brain injury, such as a concussion, and then a period of time later, you suffer another one. And this period of time can be short or long, seriously, hours, days, weeks, even months. Simply put, you suffer another traumatic brain injury before the first one had the chance to actually fully heal. And yes, second impact syndrome can be lethal. I mean, that's how serious of an issue concussions can be. And now, again, 1991, the NCAA concludes that they need to adopt these protocols. This is the college level of football. It's not till 1994 that the National Football League, the professional level, decides to even begin to do their own research on the subject. So here we are in 1994. Close your eyes. Picture it. It was a simpler time. Well, maybe just seemed that way to me because I was just so very small. But NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue forms the MTBI committee. And at the head of the committee, the league appoints New York Jets team doctor Elliot Pellman, a guy who had no previous experience with brain injuries. Oh, good choice to start us off. Now, editor Lauren Ezelkinlaw for Frontline PBS put together a solid piece in 2013 showing a timeline of the NFL's history with concussions. And so I'm going to walk you through a little bit of how this unfolded. That full article you'll find in the source notes for this episode. So, all right, here we go. 1994, Dr. Pellman gets asked about the issue of concussions and tells Newsday, quote, We discuss it on the list of things every time we have a league meeting. We think the issue of knees, of drugs and steroids and drinking are far greater problems according to the numbers of incidents, end quote. Pellman then also tells Sports Illustrated that, quote, Concussions are a part of the profession, an occupational risk. Yeah, an occupational risk that wasn't properly researched or really made aware to the people taking the risk. But anyways, that same year, 94, Dallas Cowboys quarterback Troy Aikman gets a knee to the head in the NFC Championship game, and that puts him in the hospital. 
Aikman later told his agent that he had no memory of the entire game or most of the afternoon. And Troy Aikman was one of those guys. Like, a lot of NFL players are often labeled this way. You know, he was a person that was always praised for his toughness, you know, their ability to battle. It's a common theme for football players. It's really a cultural thing in the sport. Anybody who's played football knows this. Unlike other sports, although I admit all sports have an element of playing through the pain, but football's got just that little extra that other sports maybe don't sometimes. Although in recent years, there has been a slow yet evident change in attitudes towards the severity of head injuries. Now, also in 1994, Chicago Bears fullback Merrill Hodge decides to retire from the game after numerous concussions, in which one of them, the last one that led to his retirement, he said left him unable to recognize his own family. Can you imagine that kind of damage just from playing a game? Now, Commissioner of the League Paul Tagliabue is quoted in December of 1994 as saying that concussions were a, quote, pack journalism issue and that concussions were not actually on the rise. Overall, they were very small, in fact. Now, let's fast forward to 1999. It was a different time. You know, the new millennium was right around the corner. A whole different set of conspiracy theories were floating through people's heads. And the MTBI committee, which had been in existence for about five years at that point, had still been relatively quiet on the issue of concussions in football. That year, former player Mike Webster, a Hall of Fame offensive lineman for the famed 1970s Pittsburgh Steelers, breaks news that he has dementia. And when he does, he cites all the blows he took to his head as a player as the cause of his declining neurological health. Mike Webster, after retiring, was believed to have had some really serious personal struggles. There's apparently an incident where he peed in his own oven. He would sleep under bridges around the city of Pittsburgh, ranted at strangers on the street about killing people. His teeth fell out, which he apparently tried to reattach with glue. He even apparently was using a taser to put himself to sleep some nights. The guy was not all right. And then here he was in 1999, declaring football as the cause of his brain problems, basically, and his declining mental health. And then at the same time, he files a disability application with the NFL's retirement board. And just to slow down here for a minute, I mean, whether you're a sports fan or not, this is a story to wrap your head around here about a guy who, in the 1970s, was an Iron Man. Again, that whole football player, tough guy thing. I mean, Mike Webster was the anchor of the offensive line the 1970s Steelers, who won four Super Bowls. I mean, he played with other Hall of Famers, Terry Bradshaw, Frank O'Harris, Mean Joe Green, Lynn Swan, John Stallworth. The teams were stacked. Mike Webster, one of the unsung heroes of that roster, played over 200 games in the NFL. And this is what his life ends up being in the end. Really, just sad. Uh, this is what a great, tough guy who, you know, inspired cities full of people ended up being in the end. And it's because of the game he played that he ended up that way. Now, in October of that year, the retirement board of the NFL actually agrees with Webster, stating in a secret ruling that blows to the head did, in fact, lead to Webster being, quote, totally and permanently disabled. Webster, along with multiple other former players, were later found to have been paid nearly $2 million in secret settlements, in which the league actually pretty much admitted that the game was causing brain damage in former players while at the same time, they were still actively denying any of those claims in public. Now, I keep telling you that they're secret because those settlements with Mike Webster and a few other players weren't revealed until they were revealed by, again, Frontline PBS in an investigation in 2012, which then undermined the argument that the NFL had been making for well over a decade in court at that moment too, during a massive lawsuit that they were facing in about 2012. But all of that, we're going to get back to. So let me pull it back again. 
And oh, also, by the way, in December of 1999, just three months after Webster came forward, Dr. Pellman, our New York Jets doctor friend here, the appointed head of the MTBI committee, tells the Chicago Tribune that the committee's studies have found that brain injuries in football are relatively uncommon and minor. Now, this comes directly from that Chicago Tribune article. Quote, after four years of keeping close track of head injuries, Pellman claims the numbers have remained, quote, remarkably the same, end quote, throughout the league. He said there were about 180 incidents per year of mild traumatic brain injury. We're talking the majority are minor injuries, Pellman said, end quote. End quote of the article, I mean. I know, quotes within quotes, but anyways, there's also a side note to make here. Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, a man who's worth billions and has become a, an American business icon thanks to his investment in the team in the late 80s, but it was around this same time that he was actually quoted as saying that he would push quarterback Troy Aikman to ignore his concussion issues if there happened to be a big game on hand. Troy Aikman would then retire from the NFL in 2001, citing concussions and his other injuries as his main concern. In 2002, Mike Webster was living with his teenage son, who had moved in with his father in order to take care of him with his declining health. Webster would also get divorced from his wife, and then six months later, would pass away from a heart attack at the age of 50. But Webster's declaration in 1999 that football damaged his brain would only be the start of his impact on the reveal of the effects of concussions in the sport. After his death, Webster's brain would be examined by Dr. Bennett Omalu. Omalu was curious if players suffered from the same issues former boxers did. Boxers at the time were believed to suffer from, quote, punch-drunk syndrome, in which they experienced higher rates of dementia, memory loss, behavioral issues, and more. And just a side note here, there's actually a really good article that will also be in the sources list for this episode from The Atlantic, and it actually details the history of the medical findings about damaged brains thanks to head trauma. Believe it or not, this history actually stems all the way back to ancient Greece and Hippocrates. You know, Hippocratic Oath, that dude. But even a few thousand years ago, there's Hippocrates making notes about the fact that he would notice that a blow to the head could cause people to experience what he would call commotio cerebri. Safe to say we've come a long way since then. But anyways, back to Dr. Omalu. His examination of Mike Webster's brain would lead him to write in an article in 2005 in the publication Neurosurgery. You gotta love these journals that are all just so simply named. What are they about? Call it that. But anyways, in Neurosurgery, this journal... He detailed his discovery of a new brain disease from the examination of Mike Webster's brain that he would call chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I actually got that on the first try. It's quite a mouthful, but it's also known as CTE. And Webster had it. Now, here's the kicker. Not that kind of kicker, but you know what I mean. In 2004, a year before Dr. Omalu's findings, the MTBI committee, the league had an action, of course, now at this point at a decade in its existence with little to show for it, but they published a piece in that same publication where they said, quote, NFL players have evolved to a state where their brains are less susceptible to injury. Let that one settle in and simmer for a moment. Evolved to a state where their brains are less susceptible to injury. That's an outrageous claim, even if it was made 3,000 years ago in ancient Greece, but in 2004. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. But two months after that, the MTBI would publish another article that concluded, quote, players who are concussed and return to the same game have fewer initial signs and symptoms than those removed from play. Return to play does not involve a significant risk of a second injury, either in the same game or during the season. Also, this part, 
Quote, a total of 92% of concussed players returned to practice in less than seven days. More than one half of the players returned to play within one day. And symptoms resolved in a short time in the vast majority of cases. I mean, what a ginormous yikes all of that is. It's, it's a lot to wrap your head around. I know. Every one of those claims is so far from true. It's, it's astonishing and really negligent on behalf of a league that makes an absurd amount of money off of people suffering these injuries. But I'm just stating the obvious, really, aren't I? It gets better. In 2003, Dr. Pellman, who was still working for the New York Jets, here's a fun story for you, really, but he was also still leading the MTBI committee at this time. He's on staff for a game with the Jets where Jets wide receiver Wayne Corbett gets knocked unconscious, out cold, only to be cleared and then returned to the game by, yeah, Dr. Pellman. I would have to assume that Hippocrates was spinning in his grave as that took place. But what happened to Dr. Omalu after he published his findings? Well, the NFL's MTBI committee then issued a statement in 2006, declaring that his findings be retracted. So what did Dr. Omalu do? Well, he decided to go back again to the neurosurgery publication in 2006 and not recant, but instead published that he had found the same disease in former Pittsburgh Steeler Terry Long's brain, which Dr. Omalu examined after Terry Long committed suicide by drinking antifreeze. This came after many years of his own personal problems, which culminated in him facing charges for fraud and arson before his suicide. So you have these two guys, Terry Long and Mike Webster, who, coincidentally, were actually teammates with each other for about four seasons in the 1980s, both playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers. But both guys, who both played offensive line, where there's a lot of headbanging going on throughout the course of a career, but both guys, after their careers, would have serious personal struggles, and both guys would end up dying relatively young. Long was only 45, and Webster was 50. And after both of their deaths, their brains are examined, and both are found to have CTE. Seems to be a common theme here. By the way, the story of Dr. Omalu's fight with the league over concussions was portrayed in the 2015 film, aptly named Concussion, in which he's played by Will Smith. And as we know, once it gets made into a Hollywood movie, everything's right with the world again. Anyways, in 2009, the New York Times published a piece stating that football players are 19 times more likely to develop dementia than people in the general population. Immediately after, NFL spokesperson Greg Aiello would downplay the validity of the study before admitting just two months later that, quote, it's quite obvious from the medical research that's been done that concussions can lead to long-term problems, end quote, which was quite a turn of opinion, and it was also the first time that a league official would make an admission like this. Again, he made the admission that concussions lead to long-term problems, not that football causes concussions first. So he was so close, but not quite. In April of 2011, attorneys Saul Weiss and Larry Coben would file suit against the NFL on behalf of former players Ray Easterling and Jim McMahon. In the following couple of years, thousands of former players would also file suits. And at that point, the levy had broken. The league, of course, was truly in a tough spot after Frontline broke the news of secret payments to Mike Webster and other players almost a decade before, where in the same part of time that they were denying that concussions were an issue in football, they also were acknowledging secretly the connection between football and brain injuries. In 2012, Ray Easterling shot himself and died. A month later, former linebacker Junior Seau shot himself in the chest and died. Both of these suicides happened about a year 
after former Chicago Bears safety Dave Dewerson shot himself in the chest and died. But before Dewerson took his own life, he requested that his brain be examined after he was gone. Easterling, Seau, and Dewerson, all three players were found to have CTE. This is where the league was severely backed into a corner. And eventually, they actually panicked. There was a point in this process where the NFL would try to push the lawsuits onto dozens of insurance companies they worked with in order to cover their legal costs. But those insurance companies would avoid their own liability because, as one countersuit from Travelers Insurance showed, they covered the league's merchandising arm, and not the league directly in this sort of case. And since most of the suits were being filed directly at the league, basically the insurance companies told the NFL to get bent. In 2013, the lawsuit had grown to have over 4,500 plaintiffs, and in April of that year, a judge ruled that the league and the plaintiffs were to reach a settlement considering the size and scope of the lawsuit. Four months later, the lawsuit would be settled for $765 million, which would be used to provide healthcare to former players, to fund initiatives to make the game safer, and to provide assessments and assistance for future retirees from the game. The catch? Well, isn't there always a catch in these big corporate lawsuits? But, of course, in the settlement, the NFL wanted to make it clear that the settlement itself was not an admission of liability. I mean, meet that with a giant eye roll if you want, right? But that being said, the NFL had finally, in some way at least, admitted to what they had been denying for decades, that the game of football is extremely dangerous to your neurological health. The NFL, though, still wouldn't actively admit any links between CTE and football until 2016, three more years later, when the league was brought before a congressional committee. I mean, hats off to them. Most major corporations don't admit anything to Congress, but the NFL at least admitted this. Small victories, I suppose. But just how bad is the CTE problem, though? I will get these numbers. A study conducted by Dr. Ann McKee at Boston University found 90 of 94 deceased former NFL players had CTE. It's an astounding number. Dr. Bennett Omalu would be quoted in Time magazine in 2015 that 90% of football players would have some degree of CTE, and that at that point in time, he had yet to examine a former football player's brain that didn't have it. Good news for us former football players. Another large study found that 110 out of 111 brains of deceased former players had CTE too. I mean, those are good odds that you've got it, right? Now look, admittedly the NFL did take steps to limit the effect of brain injuries on players by changing rules, starting initiatives to teach safer tackling techniques at the youth football level, and of course, above all, they ran a nice PR campaign just like they always do, ensuring us that everything was going to be just fine. The reality is, these findings got lost in the sauce, and the changes the NFL made were really a band-aid solution to a problem that, at this point, maybe can't be fixed. And personally, like I said earlier, when I played football, the knowledge on concussions was vague at best, and I had multiple instances of getting what I know now were concussions, and I never missed a day. I never missed a practice. I mean, all right. Let me run you through a couple of things I can remember. Shocking that I can remember them. One time in practice when I was in about the 11th grade, I got knocked unconscious after a tackle, head-on-head collision. I don't remember three or four minutes. Apparently, I was out cold. I finished that practice. I had a game where I got knocked in the head so hard I saw a different color in the sky. I finished that game. 
I got hit in the back of the head once and couldn't remember for a few minutes what the hell was going on. This happened five or six times. And look, at the time, it just was what it was. Wasn't information on it. Trainers didn't know what the whole deal was. I mean, if I'd gone to a doctor and gotten assessed a few times, I might have had a clearer picture. But really, it was tough it out. Life goes on. I had one hit to the head after a high school game where I spent the whole weekend in my room, in my bed, with the blinds closed. I mean, at the time, I thought I was just a depressed teenager, but maybe something was making me that way, and I just didn't know it. But anyways, I really don't have any actual clue what damage may have been done. I'm just, I guess, working through it these days. And not that my story is some prime example, but we can see that concussions are a major issue, especially at the collegiate and professional levels, and it upends people's lives after their playing days are over. You know, the NFL has a nickname, Not For Long, and that's a nickname that's rooted in the fact that the average length of an NFL career is between two and a half and three years. Studies reveal that the risk of developing CTE goes up 30% for every year you play football meaning in about three years, you'd be twice as likely to have it. The average length of an NFL career, therefore, would double your risk. Except then you remember that every player in the NFL has to play at least three years of college football. And obviously, they would have had to have played at least a few years of high school football too. And then you see how it really doesn't get any better. So, okay, let's huddle up here and regroup because I know that this first half has been a lot to unpack. And as I'm recording, I can see how long the first half is. I got to tell you, I didn't think this episode would be so long, especially since I relaunched the podcast and I was trying to make episodes shorter and more to the point. But I have to apologize. We're talking about something I know a lot about and that I'm passionate about. So there's been a lot more tangents in this episode, I guess. But all right, we know now that the NFL likely knew for years that their product was destroying the brains of the very athletes that they also love to paint as tough as nails heroes who can overcome anything until they retire, in which case they're on their own. Much like cigarette companies did with their denial and active disruption of scientific research on their product, the NFL knowingly avoided acknowledging the issue out of fear of it hurting the brand. But the thing is, even now, the NFL brand has never been stronger. League revenue in 2006, when the CTE discovery was first made, $6.5 billion a year. In 2019, $15 billion. So what's a billion-dollar settlement along the way, really? Now, just as a side note, revenues actually did drop in 2020 to $12 billion, but that's pretty clearly attributed to a certain public health crisis. Anyways, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, who took over the job in 2006, which, looking back in hindsight now, seems like coincidental timing for a regime change, and he also did a god-awful job of managing the concussion controversy through that whole lawsuit, in 2019 and 2020, he raked in a cool $63 million each year. Hey, the money hasn't stopped. The content machine that is the NFL media spheres just keeps pumping out your daily team breakdowns, your fantasy updates, injury reports, Super Bowl halftime show announcements, triumphant player profiles, power rankings, Carrie Underwood singing songs, man, all the fireworks and jets going over and whoa, dude, awesome. Rams are going to win the Super Bowl this year. I can feel it. I'm so sorry. I just get so caught up in the pageantry. Back to the podcast. All right. Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. Yeah. All right. Look, I'm going to level with you here. 
It's not going to get a lot better in the second half of this episode because of, well, this. There was a big piece of that 2013 lawsuit settlement between the league and former players, and that was that players in the future, like I said, would be assessed for neurological conditions going forward, which would then determine their eligibility for funds from the settlement and the health benefits for those conditions. I mean, sounds good, right? Sounds like a natural thing to put into place after a settlement about an injury case like this. And of course, you know that it's not that simple. And I'm just being a jerk because obviously we're only at the halfway point of this episode and you know there's more to come and it's not going to be sunshine and rainbows because as it turns out, black players who submitted applications under the program for these assessments in order to get these health benefits and their piece of this giant settlement pool, they were subjected to a practice known as race norming, a medical philosophy with roots and centuries-old ideas of physiological differences between races of people, a concept that now deserves the updated medical terminology label of, quote, racist bullshit. But in this case with the NFL, it stopped black former football players from receiving the benefits that they deserved. Now, we're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to look at what is race norming? What did it mean for former players trying to receive these benefits? And what does it say about a league that still can't seem to grasp or do anything right when it comes to its own racial identity. All that is coming up after a couple of messages from fellow indie podcasters who are out there making great content of their own. So stick around, find your next favorite podcast, and we'll be right back with Assorted Goods in a moment. Do you read books? Do you live by small bodies of water surrounded by trees and other wildlife? Is that geese shit? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you have found a home here at the Brook Reading Podcast. Each week, I read a book while nestled in my small New Jersey apartment and gaze out the window at a brook. Then I jump online, talk about it, ask for your opinions, and bitch about something for approximately five minutes. If you would like to join this madness, check out the Brook Reading Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or on the Radio Public app. Let's step into some animal feces together. Looking for a little pick-me-up to add to your regular rotation of audio? Well, maybe this is what's missing from your life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! Come drop in on the laughs and the continuing conversation every Thursday with us here on the Fucking A Podcast as a couple of longtime friends get into what's going on in our lives and all around planet Earth. Listen to Fucking A wherever you get your pods. Hey, that last guy's voice sounded pretty familiar. I know, plugging my own podcast on my own podcast, but, you know, just a little shameless self-promotion from my podcasting alter ego. But anyways, welcome back to Assorted Goods. We're diving into the NFL's concussion issue. And before the break, we got to the part of this story where after a lawsuit by thousands of former NFL players was settled in 2013, the NFL introduced programs that would assess players' neurological health and then pay out funds depending on the severity of their conditions. The problem? Well, it's that the league mandated their doctors use a practice called race norming when assessing black players' cognitive abilities. Essentially, race norming meant that black players were given a lower starting point or baseline scores 
for their neurological assessments. And then after their assessments, their scores were curved differently compared to white players, meaning it was harder for them to reach the threshold in order to receive benefits and get their fair share of that settlement money. Yeah, not good. Kind of a dick move, NFL. And follow me on this side road here for a minute, because I feel like it's kind of an important point to make. But in terms of the NFL's racial demographics, in any given year, somewhere between 60 and 75% of active players in the NFL are black, whereas about 10% of the league office is black. And coming into the 2021 season, only three of the 32 head coaches were African-American. Pittsburgh's Mike Tomlin, Miami's Brian Flores, and Houston's David Culley. Another side note, David Culley is in his first year as a head coach and hasn't had very much success so far this season. Brian Flores is in his third year and also has had a rough year. Mike Tomlin is the only long-serving African-American coach in football right now, having been coach of the Steelers for about a decade and a half. The point being that African-American candidates in the NFL rarely get opportunities to actually become head coaches, and when they do, they're not given a lot of leeway in terms of how long they get to keep those jobs. Outside of Cully, Tomlin, and Flores, only two other head coaches are non-white out of 32 teams, that being the New York Jets' Robert Saleh and the Washington football team's Ron Rivera. So five out of 32 head coaches are non-white in a league that is roughly 70% African-American. Doesn't seem to add up. And for non-football fans, you should be aware that the NFL in 2003 introduced something called the Rooney Rule. And essentially what the Rooney Rule is, is an affirmative action initiative that requires teams to interview ethnic minority candidates for head coaching positions and senior operations positions within their organizations. But something to note, it only encourages an interview to take place. There's absolutely no mandate to hire. The Rooney Rule was created after the 2002 firings of black head coaches Tony Dungy of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the time and Denny Green of the Minnesota Vikings. At that time, Dungy had a winning record as a head coach for the Buccaneers, and Denny Green had just had his first bad season after a decade of sustained success with the Minnesota Vikings. Both lost their jobs. Shortly after the firing of both coaches, U.S. civil rights attorneys Cyrus Mayrie and Johnny Cochran released a study showing that black head coaches, despite winning a higher percentage of games, were less likely to be hired and more likely to be fired than their white counterparts. There was also a really cruel twist of irony. When Tony Dungy was fired by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they went and hired a guy named John Gruden who, if you're a football fan or not, may have heard that just last month lost his job as the head coach of the Oakland Raiders, sorry, Las Vegas Raiders, still adapting to that new reality, but it was found that he was sending some pretty racist emails within his own NFL email accounts. Who does that crap? But yeah, Dungy lost out, and Gruden ended up winning a Super Bowl with his team the next year. Luckily, Tony Dungy would get his own Super Bowl a few years later as the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. And also in another twist of irony, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, after having Gruden as their head coach so many years ago, won the Super Bowl again last year with one of the most diverse coaching staffs ever seen in the NFL. Although it should be noted that despite the two leading assistant coaches both being African-American and Tampa Bay's current staff also being the first team to ever have two female assistant coaches, the head coach of the team was still an old white guy. Just saying, just saying, but that's kind of the point. Since the introduction of the Rooney Rule in 2003, in which at that point there were three African-American head coaches, 18 years later, there are three African-American head coaches. So progress? Not really. 
And that's an argument that people get into every offseason when head coaches get fired and jobs come open. And I'm sure that is a long way from being settled. But there's also this problem with the ownership in the NFL. 32 NFL teams. And ownership is probably the most important thing here because these are the people who make the major decisions that influence the game of football. And it's not just at the professional level. As the NFL goes, really, so does the whole culture of the sport as well. Of the 32 teams in the NFL, only two are owned by people who are not white. The first being the Jacksonville Jaguars, who are owned by Pakistani-American businessman Shad Khan. And then there's the Buffalo Bills, who are actually co-owned by Terry Pegula, a white man, and his wife Kim Pegula, who was born in South Korea. So that's two teams, really kind of one and a half out of 32. And of those two non-white owners, those two backgrounds, Pakistan and South Korea, from what I can tell and the research I was able to do, only one person who was ever born in Pakistan has played in the NFL, and only four people born in South Korea have ever played in the NFL. And actually, one of those people from South Korea was wide receiver Heinz Ward, one of my favorite players growing up. A real tough guy, as they say. But anyways, my point there is not to disparage the fact that these two people come from backgrounds that are outside of the regular demographics, but actually to further make the point of exactly that, that the small fractional percentage of non-white ownership in the NFL owners club are still absolutely not reflective of the demographics of the league itself. There are no African-American owners in a league that is oftentimes 70% black, which finally brings us back around to the use of the concept of race norming when assessing players' neurological conditions after retirement. And the only reason we even know that this is a practice the NFL was taking part in is because black former players began to notice something about their assessments in the years following that 2013 settlement. Players were noticing that the threshold that they had to meet in order to qualify for benefits from that settlement were much harder to meet than they were for white retirees. And about a year and a half ago, former players Najee Davenport and Kevin Henry filed the lawsuit against the NFL quietly in which they demanded an end to the practice. In Davenport's filing, the NFL argued that the benefits he received were not measured correctly because they didn't use, quote, full demographic norms. It's always a nice, pretty PR way to put it, isn't there? But in response to the league, Davenport's doctor would argue that his results were measured to the standard that anyone else would be measured, and that any use of racialized standards would be, quote, discriminatory and illegal. Yeah, as they should be. But let's not tiptoe around this whole thing here. Race norming just is flat out an echo of the same racist pseudoscience bullshit that was used to prop up racist ideologies for a long time, well into the 20th century even. And let's be real, there are still plenty of people out there who buy into that kind of stuff. Things like eugenics and phrenology, ideas that races have key biological differences that create a hierarchy of certain groups that are simply better than others because of quote-unquote nature. And here's an uncomfortable thought, sorry for this, but these racialized standards for assessing health problems apparently happens all over the place. It's not just an NFL issue. Tests that still get used to measure respiratory function and kidney function also use race-norming principles. For example, the use of spirometers to measure lung capacity? Well, if we roll it back to the days of Thomas Jefferson and Nothing but good things and the issues of race happen when you roll back to Thomas Jefferson, but he once wrote that black slaves had a, quote, deficiency in their lung capacities, 
compared to the white people. A doctor after the Civil War would then take these findings and expand on them. And that same doctor would actually still be cited in articles about lung capacity right up to the modern day. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, Dan, there are surely some differences between groups of people. And yes, maybe that is true, except that so often, with issues of race over the centuries, the answers that are accepted when it comes to differences are things along the lines of, hey, that's just nature. That's just something that people are inherently born with, and not the socioeconomic conditions that affect certain communities that maybe lead to different physiological outcomes compared to other groups. Kind of a long-winded sentence, you know, it doesn't really fit on a hat, I guess, but when it comes to respiratory differences between races, a study was done on scientific articles on the subject of those respiratory differences between 1922 and 2008. And after examination of all these scientific articles, what was found was that 94% of the articles contained no examination of the racial groups in the context of socioeconomic status, something that we absolutely know plays a significant role in health outcomes. Basically, people would look at an issue see differences between groups, and then go, well, I guess that's just because one group is better than the other group. Done sciencing now. Thank you. But then get this. In 1999, an asbestos manufacturer in America used this framework of racial differences in lung capacity to use different assessment standards for black workers in order to avoid lawsuits from them in asbestos-induced lung damage. Sounds a lot like the NFL case, right? So that's kind of the thing here with the National Football League and what they were up to. Until June of this year, that is. Of this year. When the league finally promised to end the practice of race norming when assessing neurological conditions in former players. Oh, how kind of you to end race norming in the year 2021. Very progressive. Just a reminder that the NFL spent last year, during the heat of the protests over civil rights and racial discrimination, when they ran a massive PR campaign to show their support, maybe this rings a bell. I mean, when you watch games now, do you not see they wrote end racism on the back of all the end zones in every field and every stadium? And, you know, guys' helmets have little messages on them, too. Look at that. Racism solved once again. I know, I'm being a dick, but humor is my defense mechanism for things that enrage me when I learn about them. Now, just like in the late 90s when the league was secretly paying former players and Acknowledging that football was giving them brain damage while simultaneously denying the same thing publicly, the NFL over the past few years, through the issues of kneeling during the national anthem and Colin Kaepernick's activism, players demanding the league make changes, the truth is that at the same time, the league was actively using racist medical ideologies in order to avoid having to pay benefits to former players, specifically black players. So this is a league that constantly says one thing, does another behind closed doors, and 30 and a half out of 32 owners in the league are white people. But anyways, like I said, the NFL agreed only this past June to end the practice. And it wasn't like they did it quietly. The league stated that the use of race norming was designed to actually reduce racial bias in assessments. And this is the thing that's always funny to me. It's kind of like when Donald Trump was president and he would say something really racist, and then when somebody would ask him about it, he'd go, I'm the least racist person ever. I mean, it's odd, this mental gymnastics of do something racist, get caught, and then go, actually meant to do it to not be racist. I mean, anyone can lie about their intentions, but their outcomes 
speak much clearer, like the use of the lower lung capacity standards with the asbestos company, or obviously the NFL setting lower baselines for black former players when getting their cognitive abilities assessed. The outcomes say something much clearer. Black applicants seeking compensation for occupational hazards have a harder time and receive those benefits far less often than their white counterparts. End of story. No legalese PR campaign needed to explain any further. It's clear. And there's more. The NFL, after stating they would stop using race norming, then also stated that the practice was never actually mandatory. But, just like Najee Davenport's case, the NFL apparently appealed a bunch of claims made by former players that were approved when these race norming standards weren't actually used in their assessments. Of the 2,000 retirees, who have filed dementia claims with the league since the settlement in 2013, less than 600 had been approved. For former Pittsburgh Steeler Carlton Hazelrig and former Houston Oiler Johnny Durden, the discovery that they would have been eligible for benefits from the settlement pool had they been white was a shock, of course. The average payout for players with early-stage dementia is over $500,000, and for those with moderate dementia, it's $700,000. Considering the cost of the American healthcare system, this money would have been life-changing for these former players and their families. Now, the NFL says they will review and reassess previously adjudicated cases that were denied, but this feels a little bit like they just got caught with their hand in the cookie jar and are just backpedaling now. The NFL was adamant that the race norming practice was not mandatory and that if it was used, it only affected a small percentage of the claims. Just like the concussions, remember? It's not an issue. And if it is an issue, it's just a tiny wee little issue that you should shut up and check out the game of the week. Rams, Packers, a showdown of NFC contenders fighting for playoff position brought to you by Pepsi. We should be able to recognize the patterns here, shouldn't we? The similarities between how the league responds when pitted against a controversy. The fact that the same tactics were used in other industries to the same effect. To deny healthcare benefits to injured workers specifically non-white workers. But the thing that really boggles my melon here a bit is that as major of a story as this appears to be, especially in this day and age, it really should have been headline news that the NFL couldn't escape. But it hardly made a blip on the radar of the NFL news cycle, especially, but even mainstream news in general. I mean, I know we got a lot going on out here in the world these days, but still. And maybe it has to do with the fact that it's a $15 billion a year industry. I mean, the sport has literally thousands of TV shows, podcasts, blogs, and even more people who want in on the NFL content game, who want to become football podcast blogger influencers, who want to be making money talking about fantasy football and game day gambling, analysis of the last week's action, projections on the upcoming draft, anything and everything except for the reality of the sport and the league itself. I mean, shit, I believe this is the first time I've ever talked about football, one of my favorite things in life on this podcast, and this is the way it goes. Well, I guess I'm not getting on that sweet NFL content action anytime soon, but in June, when the story broke that the NFL admitted to the use of race norming, it was the perfect time. You see, June, for non-football fans, is in that narrow window of the calendar year when the NFL actually isn't for a moment a hot topic at all. It's pretty much the most dead part of the offseason. The NFL draft has come and gone by that point. 
training camps and preseason are still about a month and a half away. And the biggest story in the league at the time this year in June, and for the months following, honestly, after this story broke, was will Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers resolve their feud and kiss and make up and get on with winning football games? Seriously, ask anybody who's a football fan and they'll tell you, the only thing you heard about in football circles all summer was Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, all the time. June of this year in the NFL content game was basically your daily Aaron Rodgers update brought to you by DraftKings and pubic hair trimmers and protein bars. All right, I know. <laughs> Ranty Dan is back on the scene, I guess, but here's another thing. The game of football has changed in the past decade since the levy broke on concussions in the sport. But the numbers of concussions that have taken place? Well, according to the league's own data, which obviously I think we need to take with a grain of salt, considering these numbers are accumulated by a third-party company that the NFL pays, but the number of concussions recorded in 2015, 275. In 2019, 224. So maybe the number is actually coming down a bit. Although, I mean, this is a league that's already not trustworthy, keeping track of its own numbers. And the league has roughly 1,700 players knocking their heads every day. 200 concussions a year out of 1,700 players? Especially when, when analyzing the brains of former players, like 90 to 95% of them have CTE? Kind of seems like a low number. But then, of course, you realize that these are only the official concussions that are recorded by the league. And that also, in reality, what the threshold is for something that can be qualified as a concussion is still really poorly defined. And the number of blows to the head that don't meet the threshold of a concussion are still happening all over in practices and games every day. One study from Purdue University found that on average, a high school football player could take anywhere between 200 to 1,800 blows to the head a year. So what can we do to mitigate that, especially considering that that's just the high school level? Can't imagine what the pro level is for a lot of guys. So what can we do? Well, one article I found from Time Magazine suggested that players should be on hit counters, kind of like pitchers in baseball who have pitch counters, in order to avoid degenerative issues with their arms. Get this suggestion from the article, seriously. Players should be limited to 90 hits per week of 20 Gs or more, and that 20 Gs is the equivalent of a mild fender bender. Ah, only 90 fender benders a week, kids. Limit yourself to no more than that. But that's absolutely true. And anybody who's played football, I mean, and I don't want to speak for all of them, but personally, I'll tell you, yeah, a lot of these hits do feel like that. Like a car accident. I've been in a car accident and I've taken plenty of hits on a football field and I'll tell you, it is similar. There's something about that jarring of the equipment and of the helmets that really simulates that feeling. You really get shaken up in that same sort of way. Now imagine doing it hundreds if not thousands of times, your brain rattling around in your skull, slamming off the sides, taking hits over and over and over. And in that study by Purdue, the hits that were measured on these high school kids ranged from that 20 G's threshold up to mostly over 100 G's. And in that study, they even claimed to have measured one hit that registered at 300 G's. Can you imagine? It's like getting hit by a bus. Also in that same study, and one of the things that is the biggest problem for the game of football at all is that they found that it's not a singular blow to the head that's the biggest issue when it comes to concussions, but it's actually the hundreds of those micro traumas that can lead to the same neurological issues. 
So whether it's a big hit or not, it's just simply playing the sport that adds up. Concussions aren't just a football problem either, although that's the focus of our episode. Soccer, European football players, have concussion problems too from heading the ball so often. Concussions are also an issue in hockey. And of course, combat sports like boxing and MMA have clearly been causing neurological issues in their athletes for years too. Simply put, smacking your head a bunch of times isn't good. Who knew? So all right. The National Football League has been at the forefront of the problem with concussions and brain injuries, and we know that. And it's very likely that the issue isn't going anywhere anytime soon, since it's baked into the crust of the sport itself. So Dan, where are you going to go with this whole episode? I mean, come on, the game's about to start. Wrap it up and stop trying to make me not enjoy something that I will never stop enjoying. Well, probably the most glaring thing that we've talked about in this episode is the fact that the National Football League an organization that each and every year makes billions and billions of dollars more than it did the year before, would have the audacity to use racist, outdated medical philosophies to justify avoiding paying claims to former players who suffered brain damage from being participants in the entertainment product. It says a lot about the league and the people who run it, doesn't it? Now, that 2013 settlement of $765 million became a billion-dollar settlement in 2015 when the pool was expanded. And yet, that billion dollars is hardly a dent in the profits of the league, especially compared to the numbers that they've been putting up for the last 20 years or so. But they still took steps, knowingly and unapologetically, to use these practices to save every dollar they could. But it's not surprising, really, is it? Because it's a common playbook for giant businesses with health-hazardous products. Sell as much as you can for as long as you can, and then, you know, when an issue comes up, fight it, deny it, and if possible, actively obstruct efforts to find the truth. And then if the truth does come out, deny it, smear the person who made the claim, run a PR campaign. Get caught in the lie? Of course. Deny it still, and then minimize it. Remember, it's really only a small problem affecting a small number of people. Well, what if this doesn't work either? Now the lawsuits are coming in. Oops. Well... Try to shift the blame to somebody else. Keep running that PR campaign and make hollow attempts at reform. Did you lose the lawsuit? Well, now you get to make it hard for beneficiaries to receive their benefits thanks to loopholes and technicalities and things like race norming. Make some more empty changes, more empty promises, and of course, PR campaign, PR campaign, PR campaign. Have you seen the lineup for the Pepsi halftime show at this year's Super Bowl? Whoa, man. Look. I love the NFL. I love its product. It's been a huge part of my life. I'm literally right now amped up to watch my Rams play today. I am a part of the problem. I know that. Because when the game starts and all my troubles fade away and the simplicity of the structured game of football takes over, suddenly I forget about all this stuff like everybody does. But it is absolutely essential, whether you're a fan of the sport or not, that we remember the people we are dealing with here. Remember the steps they actively took to deny benefits to people who deserve them and to obstruct the research into brain injuries that could have saved countless lives and improved the quality of life for countless more. If the league had taken ownership of the problem and actually been leaders for change and not, you know, jackasses for profits. But I obviously laugh at myself knowing that there is some serious futility in that argument. Yes, of course, Dan, obviously, if people mattered more than money, a lot of things would be better in the world. 
What a great episode to wrap up to that thought. But at the end of this episode, really, I'm once again drawn back into my own experiences, knocking my head hundreds of times on the practice field and in games, wondering why my late teenage years were plagued by depression, suicidal thoughts, social anxiety, memory and focus issues, some things that I've dealt with for most of my adult life at times too. Really, I'll never know if the 90 casual car crashes a week affected me. It's just a mystery that I live with now. But I'm certainly curious about it. And I would also hate to leave this episode as nothing but a smear on the game of football. Because truthfully, this sport saved my life at a time that it may have been altering the course of it as well. It was the first thing that I loved. It was the first thing that I was actually able to work at and then get good at and actually have some sort of reward in the end. It's where I made friends that have lasted a lifetime. It gave me confidence and purpose in those awkward years of my life where everything is a complete shit show. And after I was done playing, because, well, believe it or not, college football programs don't really bang down the door of a 5'7", 160-pound kid who ran kind of slow, but I missed the game so much after it was gone, really because I had yet to find other things to fall in love with, like podcasting and writing, for example. I coached the sport for a few years too, which I also loved doing, really. I loved teaching kids to play the game, to develop their own confidence, to see them work hard and then have it pay off like it did for me, to help them grow as people, the same way that my coaches helped me when I was young. Some of my closest friends now coach the game still, and they do excellent jobs. They bring wisdom and empathy to a sport that a lot of times is in desperate need of it. But being very honest as we reach the end here, I also sometimes wish that I had never picked up a helmet. I wish I had invested myself in other things during those years of my life. Or I wish I had played baseball or something instead, because again, I don't really know now what the game may have done to me. And truthfully, I still love football. I'll always be a fan of the NFL and college football, and I'll still go to high school games around here when I get the chance. Giant shitbags at the NFL may be, I'm hooked on their product. But to be honest, at this point in my life, if I ever had kids, I truthfully really, really, really would not want them to play this sport. That's just where I'm at about it right now. It's a shameful contradiction, isn't it? Being a fan, knowing the horrible side of it all, and still loving the product too much to quit. It's a classic conundrum. And maybe you have strong feelings one way or the other about the sport or about some of the things I've said this episode, but whatever you think about the subject, I think at the very least we should be able to agree on a couple of things. One, clearly, the use of race norming and assessing players' cognition is cowardly and just a flat-out bullshit tactic that is absolutely racist in its inception and its use. But also, Football is a dangerous sport to play, any way you look at it, even with the rule changes and the tackling guidelines and all the stuff they've tried to do to make the sport safer, it is still inherently very hazardous to your neurological health. But if people want to take the risk, and if parents want to let their kids play, they have the freedom to choose that. But at the very least, I think we can all agree that it means that a multi-billion dollar empire can do the absolute very least of their own and support the healthcare of the workers that gave their neurological well-being and shortened their lifespans by decades in order to play the game that allowed these team owners to attain those sweet, sweet profits. 
maybe I'm just being naive again. You think I'd be over that by now at the age of 30, but if you ask me, it just seems like in a sport where we always preach things like teamwork, fairness, camaraderie, leadership, that we could start living those principles for real by being honest about the risks of the game and by treating those who have suffered as a result of playing it with the dignity and the respect that they so absolutely deserve. All right, that's it for this episode of Assorted Goods. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. And I genuinely hope that you found this episode interesting and valuable. I'm always looking for honest feedback. So seriously, whatever you thought, let me know. If you want to follow the show on the socials, you can follow me and Assorted Goods on Twitter and Instagram. The handle on both platforms is at DisinformedDan. You can also visit the website for this show, disinformed.ca slash assortedgoods, where you can find show notes for each episode and the list of sources used for the information in the episode. There's also some writing I've done, some other podcast projects, all this sorts of good stuff around there. If you want to support Assorted Goods, all that I ask is for you to leave it an honest rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you choose to listen with. And more importantly, tell a friend about it. Share the show and help Assorted Goods reach some new people. If you want to email the show and contact me directly, you can either hit the contact page on disinformed.ca or just make it easy and email me, dan at disinformed.ca. The music for this episode was created and produced by my talented brother, David Felton. Thank you, brother. And, as always, credit for the information used in this episode goes to the journalists, academics, writers, editors, and everyone involved in keeping people like me informed so I can provide people like you with a quality show. Please consider supporting quality content wherever you may find it. Thank you again for listening. Take care of each other out there, and I'll catch you next time here on Assorted Goods.